0: Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome to the podcast. As we move around the body, I am Daisy Cunningham. I am the college's heritage manager.
1: And I'm Olivia Howitt, and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. Today, we've made it as far as the history of the tongue. Do you have any particular starting points or thoughts? because the the tongue is like both to do with talking and eating it's kind of got a bit of a duality to it i suppose
0: i suppose and it's also maybe one of those body parts that ends up being a sort of a metaphor and i think for for me and i feel like i'm a broken record on this but i felt the more i looked at tongue in that sort of context the more it was like oh women women being difficult women (laughs) Um, I think that what I was looking, I got I went down the the sort of rabbit hole a bit of the scolds bridle. It's not necessarily local to Scotland entirely, but it's something that is particularly associated with or was particularly common in Scotland. And having not read up on it before, I think I'd sort of vaguely thought that a scolds bridal, wasn't really real you know in the same way that we discovered at one point that chastity belts were mostly really made up by the victorians like it wasn't really a thing it was a joke in the middle ages it was sort of an allegory or something and then the victorians started making them and saying oh yes everyone did this before us because they were all so brutal and i think i just sort of vaguely thought this can't be real So just to put it into context, the skull's bridle is sort of a, a, a metal mask, I suppose, that was put on someone's head. And the sort of important part of this mask was the fact that there was a tongue compressor element to it. So there was a part that would go into the mouth, it would hold down the tongue, and it would stop you from speaking. And it just feels like it should be a myth. It doesn't feel like something, it should be real.
1: Yeah, I think I read that the first documented case of using a gold's bridle was in Scotland.
0: The version that I read was that there there were things like this that were used on the continent, the European continent earlier, but they were punishments for specific crimes. So they were part of the legal system. I think the use in Scotland was specifically against witches or women. We were the first people to specifically use it in this sort of non-legal, unorthodox way and specifically to use them particularly on women. And it seems that it was never a sort of a, a formally codified in an act of parliament sort of punishment, but it was used by authorities. So town councils, Kirk Sessions, you know, it wasn't just sort of somebody doing it to their wife or something like that.
1: So it wasn't just the physical restraint of it. It was to do with humiliation, wasn't it?
0: It varied from place to place, so there doesn't seem to have been a sort of official prototype of how it worked. In some cases, you would be it would be attached to a leash; you would be, re- you know, led around the town. Sometimes, apparently, they had like a bell attached, so that you know everyone in the neighbourhood would come out and see what was happening, and people would throw things or shout things, or you know. So it was an absolutely a, a, a public punishing. It would sometimes be combined with shaving the woman's head. So it's fairly gruesome. And just to take it to the darkest place, the worst ones definitely seem to be Scottish because there was one called the Forfar bridle, which had spikes, which actually penetrated the tongue and the roof of the mouth as well. So it was a, a pretty serious punishment. But the word scold meant somebody who was a gossip or a nag or was too loud. And it was actually a legal term. These were people who were being punished for the crime of being a scold. I say people. We are absolutely talking about women. 99% of the time we're talking about women here. One of the, the things that comes out of this is how vague and blurry the line is of what a witch is. That it then becomes sort of just difficult women. Women who are seen as a threat to society, so it would often be women who were widows and therefore there was no man to sort of control them, or perhaps women who were just difficult in some way, perhaps women who were poor and and isolated, but also small, tight-knit communities. There is this sort of fear of what gossiping, lying, story-making can do to a community like that. And I think that's probably the end of it. I mean, obviously, we don't know for sure. But, you know, the growth of cities, the the urbanisation, people not really living in, in large numbers in these sort of little remote communities in the same way anymore. That's probably why this punishment fizzles out, because gossip isn't as scary anymore. That makes sense. I imagine male gossip was probably as much of a threat, if not more, as female gossip, given that yeah. they were more likely to be public figures and have certain connections in the community. So the fact that it's so focused on women means that it's not an effective solution to a problem, <laughs>
1: certainly. Talking about phrases that involve the tongue, being tongue-tied is uh, related to the condition of being tongue-tied. It's a condition that some people have at birth called ankyloglossia, where the frenulum underneath your tongue is so thick that it causes problems with feeding. Effectively, your tongue is tied and supposedly the recognition of that being a condition and the phrase of using it to mean someone that can't express themselves properly grew from the same time period in the 1500s. I think the treatment is just to cut the frenulum underneath your tongue.
0: I I have a horrible feeling that tongue is going to be a fairly grim... I feel like we've gone from one slightly grim thing to another. Another um condition where uh cutting the tongue was the treatment, I'm afraid, which is stuttering. Now we would have that understanding that stuttering is is genetics and environment, a combination of those factors. The supposed causes of stuttering in the past, I, I'm kind of fascinated by how they got to this point, but too much tickling of a baby, the baby will then grow up to stutter. Oh no. <laughs> Allowing a baby, allowing a toddler to look in a mirror was another oh. one. If they see themselves, that causes them to stutter. Because it's so frightening? I mean, as someone who doesn't have kids but has a cat, when my cat sees itself in the mirror, it does lose its <laughs> mind. So, But yes, so, you know, unsurprisingly, in sort of ancient Greece and Rome, uh, that sort of time, it's very focused on the tongue itself. So the obviously the idea of neurological, you know, conditions is 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 not really there yet so there's a lot of things about physically training your tongue so one of them is to carry either small sort of pebbles or coins under your tongue to sort of force you to kind of hold the tongue down one which seems particularly cruel is um on a cloudy day slap the stutterer in the face which feels mm. like it should be better, more of a cure for hiccups than for stuttering. You know, that just sort of surprising <laughs> yeah. you out of it. Another one which feels like it would be incredibly annoying is to drink liquid out of a snail shell. But you don't just do this once. This is how you drink liquid, all liquid for the rest of your life. I feel like you'd have to be constantly drinking just to stay hydrated. <laughs> they get very interested in the in the sort of mid 1700s late 1700s Um, with theories around the nervous system and how that affects your your physical and also mental health. And thankfully, at that point, you end up with sort of a divergent path. So I think all that sort of the mouth cutting, the tongue cutting is still happening, but there's sort of divergent other option you can go for, which is speech therapy. So they start thinking about the psychology of it all and how that works. And the earliest sort of specialist in this area, I was interested to see that they called themselves speech artists rather than speech doctors or speech therapists. And apparently this was because they were specifically trying to disassociate themselves from what you were talking about, Olivia, the cutting. You have to work on the basis that this is only rich people who are doing this. You know, they would come round to your drawing room, you would have tea together, it would all be terribly
1: civilised. Tongue-piercing? What Um, stuff do you have about tongue piercing? In terms of jewellery and permanent piercings, they only became popular in the 70s, but there was ritualistic tongue piercing in Aztec and Mayan cultures, which was to do with inflicting pain. So priests would um, pierce their tongues and draw rope or string through the piercing, but it wasn't permanent. It wasn't meant to be a, a feature. It was more to do with... Rituals. I can
0: definitely understand why tongue piercing sort of in modern Western culture came that bit later than other piercings because I just assume that there is a lot more complication around keeping it clean, keeping it sanitary and so on than you would get from an ear piercing.
1: Even more recent is the the first documented case of someone splitting their tongue was 1997 supposedly you can then move each part of your tongue independently. You have to retrain your brain to do that.
0: (laughs) Um, And and I assume, because I mean, I have known a few people who've had tongue piercings and, and they can sort of swell up quite a bit post piercing. So I assume as well as the sort of hygiene aspect, there's a potential risk to airways, Again, in a way that other piercings wouldn't have. So, I yeah, I can imagine why they weren't doing this regularly back in the 1920s or something, given the kind of layers of <laughs> potential risk involved.
1: The only other fact I have is about French kissing. The British idea of the French being more sexually promiscuous is perhaps why it's called French kissing. But kissing involving tongues has not been recorded as common until the early 20th century. The Oxford English Dictionary has a definition of French kissing from 1922. So it's a a really recent invention.
0: I didn't know that. I suppose there's a possibility that people were doing it earlier and just not writing about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Supposedly the most frequent idea of a tongue and kissing was to do with witches kissing a certain anatomical body part of the devil and the tongue being involved somehow. I don't
0: know about kissing, but there have definitely been things written in terms of uh, prostitutes and, and how you would have a nice time with a prostitute without having sex with a prostitute.
1: Before the like the modern definition of French kissing involving tongues, apparently French kissing was just to do with the cheek touching both sides of your face.
0: And and of course we then get into the sort of European rivalries that we all seem to have where you know we say it's French kissing or a French letter for condoms and so on. We've got a little advertising brochure. from It's from 1914 and it's for condoms, a whole range of different condoms. And it's got, you know, the French style condom. And there's nothing particularly Parisian about it. It's just there's an assumption that if it's to do with sex, it can't be British.
1: More marketable if it's French. Yeah.
0: In our case study today, we're going to look at the use of the tongue as a diagnostic tool. Dating back to ancient Greece, examining the tongue was part of the diagnostic process. If the eyes were the window to the soul, then the tongue was the window to the stomach. Without any way of seeing inside your patient, looking at their tongue could give signs regarding the state of their digestive organs. Some believed it could also indicate the makeup of a person's bodily humours, and the condition of their nervous system. Some physicians seem to have examined the tongue as a matter of course. Alongside checking the pulse, asking about the regularity of bowel movements and the patient's appetite, checking whether the tongue was clean or not was a standard stage in the 1600s and 1700s diagnostics. Often the answer was simply the fairly imprecise clean or dirty. But others examined the tongue in great detail, looking at did it move normally or was it restricted, What colour was it? How moist was it? What was the condition of the pupillae, or little raised dots on the surface of the tongue? These were all supposedly important factors to consider when assessing a patient's health. Its movement could be an indicator of a nervous disorder. The size of the tongue could show an illness of the stomach or brain. In some diseases there were indications visible on the tongue. If the tongue was yellow, black, or dry and cracked, But these were rare instances, and this symptom was certainly ambiguous. When, in the 1840s, Benjamin Ridge published a paper on the analysis of the tongue, he went even further. He attempted to map the tongue, showing that each section of the tongue related to a different body part or function of the body. Ridge's theory did not seem to be greatly backed up by evidence, however, and this more detailed approach did not catch on widely. More likely, the inspection of the tongue was, for much of medical history, one of the very few physical diagnostic tools available. Patients came to view tongue inspection as part of the medical encounter, and, even when newer methods of inspection, which provided better results, appeared in the 1800s, patients still expected to have their tongues inspected. Doctors, equally, were used to this ritual, even though the evidence gleaned from it, as their own patient notes show, was usually as little as the two short words, clean or dirty. In this short clip, Professor David Gentlecore explores the tongue in the context of taste and how taste was seen as connected to gender and nationality.
2: So what were some of the factors that enabled people to navigate their way through the advice regarding what sort of food, what sort of diet would, was healthy for them. Throughout the period, taste, taste both in the sense of flavor and in the sense of personal preferences, was considered a reliable indicator. Michel de Montaigne, always a good idea to quote Michel de Montaigne. He wrote in 1580, nothing hurts me that I eat with appetite and delight whereas whatever I take against my liking does me harm. Really nice advice, Don. Personal taste could change, too. Shifts that accompany changes in one's bodily circumstances, either through aging or illness. To quote Montaigne again, my appetite in various things has of its own accord, happily enough, accommodated itself to the health of my stomach. Relish and pungency in sauces were pleasant to me when young, my stomach disliking them since my taste incontinently followed. Taste was the most important criterion for assigning foods their respective qualities. So, uh, sweet and savory or meaty flavors usually led to those foods being classified as hot and moist. And because heat and moisture were the two fundamental requisites for life, these foods were also considered the most nourishing. Milder flavors, like chicken, were considered more temperate, possessing moderate heating and warming qualities. So, if the taste of individual foodstuffs was a guide to their effects on the body, the individual person's reactions to those foodstuffs, his or her, Tastes, in the sense of preferences, was regarded as a reliable guide to whether they were healthy or not. Uh, Muffet, again, he devotes an entire section of his book to discussing how meats, meaning foods, differ in taste. And here the different flavors of foods. The many kinds of tastes that be found in nourishments, he says, meet the different tastes, in the sense of preferences, of individuals. Their sympathies, antipathies, and to quote him again, inborn tasting and distasting. The close association between taste and digestibility is apparent in the work of Tobias Venner, for whom it's pretty much a rule. A food of unpleasant taste is therefore noisome, harmful, to the stomach, and a food of pleasant or delicate taste is invariably light of digestion and of good nourishment. And this link persisted throughout the whole period. As late as 1778, William Faulkner noted how, and I quote, taste seems to be the index or sign of the substance being agreeable to the stomach or fit for digestion. Just as foods disagreeable to the palate seldom digest well or contribute to the nourishment of the body. What about women's tastes? Women's tastes were naturally different from men's. Women were regarded as being generally colder and moister than men in complexion. This was used to explain why women were considered softer, weaker, less intelligent. Sorry, I'm just the messenger. Um, So medical theory was clearly an evident tool of, uh, was clearly a tool of subjugation with its roots in Aristotelian philosophy. But what's interesting for us here is that it meant that a woman's diet should be different from a man's. The problem is most um, of the dietary literature was written by men for other men, and so rarely dealt specifically with women's needs. No Renaissance regimen was published with women specifically in mind. The closest we get is that some regimens, like the one I mentioned by Castore Durante, Tesoro della Sanità, was dedicated to a woman patron. So presumably he had um, a kind of possible uh, female readership in mind. And Durante, in fact, argued that women would be able to learn the rule of healthy living both for their own sakes, to care for their own health, but also to care for the health of others, which was the, the woman's role in this period. It was only in 1771 that the first regimen dedicated entirely to women appeared, le médecin des dames, the woman's doctor.
0: Welcome to Recipes of Yore, we're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Recipe books are surprisingly kind to the tongue, by comparison to some of the deeply unpleasant treatments applied to other body parts, in one recipe book printed in Edinburgh and compiled by apothecary John Moncrief, the treatment for inflammation of the tongue is, quote, "Wash the tongue often with the juice of lettuce." Another treatment for inflammation of the tongue was drinking wine, while well, the treatment for palsy or paralysis of the tongue was to rub it with mustard seed, or a bag of sage. Another treatment for palsy of the tongue was cinnamon water held in the mouth. The treatment for filthiness of the tongue, according to John Moncrief, was quote, sugar candy held in the mouth. For hindered speech, the treatment was lavender water or cinnamon water, both drunk and held in the mouth, or a decoction of sage and wine. While quote, pustules of the tongue are cured with pomegranate wine. Honey of roses and plantain water, with the leaves of daisies chewed in the mouth. All of this is a far cry from the animal dung, urine and bat blood ingredients, which can be found in the treatments for many other body parts. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, click like, or leave a positive review or comment. We really appreciate it because it helps us get higher in the rankings and reach more people. Thank you.